Have you ever used the phrase, love it to death, right? Like, oh, I love him to death. I love her to death. Have you ever used that? What did you mean when you said it? Have you ever thought about that? You throw it out there, but did you ever think about what that means? Did you mean that like, you, it's just an attempt at expressing your elation, your emotion, your, your just enthusiasm about that person? Like, it's so fluffy, I'm going to die kind of a, a phrase. Or maybe you meant something different. Maybe you meant that I love it to death. I love him to death, meaning I'm willing to lay down my life for that person. I love that person so much, I'm willing to sacrifice myself. I'm willing to lay myself down for him. Or maybe, maybe you meant that I love that person so much that I will love them until the day I die. That's actually where that phrase came from. You see, when we go to weddings, often you hear the phrase, till death do we part, right? But a variant, an older alternate version of those wedding vows is, I will love you unto death. And that's where we get the phrase, I love it to death. What do you mean when you say those words? That you are going to die, that you are willing to die, or that you will love until the day you die? Or is it something less? I mean, let's face it, so often when we say that we love someone to death, it's little more than sentiment, isn't it? little more than expressive feelings. We might as well be saying, you know what, I really, really like that person, or I'm very fond of and appreciate that person, and I have very nice emotions about that person right now, but that's at this moment, and it's not a guarantee. We don't really mean that we are going to die. We don't really mean that we are willing to die. We don't really mean that we will love that person until the day we die. I love him to death is just a dramatic phrase. They are sentimental words that we don't really mean and that we hope that no one holds us to. You know, it's, you've probably found out in your life it's really easy to say that you love someone. But it's a lot harder to actually mean it and to live it out. It's the same way with our relationship with Christ. It's easy for us to have these moments of elation, of just overwhelming emotion. It's, it's easy for us to profess our affections for and affinities for Christ. But do we really mean that we would love him until we die? It's really easy to say it. But more often than not, what we really mean when we say, I love Jesus to death, is that we have a, a warm appreciation for him. We have a, a certain belief about him, right? But one that we really don't hope will conflict with all the other things that we love in this life. Am I right? I love Jesus, but I love something else. I don't love Jesus to death. I want to love Jesus in moderation. Am I right? I know I am in my own life. I'll say I love Jesus, but I don't really love him to death. But here's the thing. Jesus is not content with that answer. Do you realize that? Jesus is not okay with that answer. I will, love for Christ cannot stop at mere words. Jesus will not allow for moderation. He requires that we take a side, that either we love Jesus or we hate him. And there's no middle ground. 
There's no moderation. There's no in-between. You can't go through life with Jesus on the periphery, on the side, as this thing that, that you can add to when it's convenient in an attempt to play your life safe. You simply have to choose. You will either truly love Jesus or you will hate him. Jesus is of infinite worth. Those who realize that, those who recognize that, will love him. And they will desire to sacrifice themselves for him. They will literally love him to death. And we're going to see that this morning in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. It's page 850 in the Bibles and the chairs. And invite you to open there and read along with me. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. It says, And now it was two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he sat, he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told of, in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad, and they promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. In this passage, Mark contrasts two types of people. There's the woman who loves Jesus, and then there are those who hate Jesus. And by setting these together, what he's saying, he's forcing a wedge in between and saying, listen, there is no other way. You'll either love him or you'll hate him. So first, let's look at those who hate Jesus to death. It's been clear throughout the book of Mark as we've gone along that there have been plenty of people who have hated Jesus, literally hated Jesus. And this hatred is ultimately going to lead to his death here in Jerusalem, not two days from this account. Verse 1 tells us that this took place two days before the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This means that it's more than likely a Wednesday, right? Jesus is betrayed on Thursday night and on Friday he hangs on the cross for the sins of the world. Mark tells us who these Jesus haters are. They're the chief priests and the scribes. They're the religious leaders of the day. Here it is, just two days before the biggest celebration of the year. And rather than focusing on all that they have to do with regards to their priestly duties, they are focused on killing Jesus. They hated him that much. I mean, have you ever thought about that? Like, you have all sorts of of stuff to do, 
Right? You've got all of these responsibilities and you can't focus on the Passover. You can't focus on the Feast of the Unleavened Bread because you're too busy trying to kill Jesus. Well, why? Well, their hatred of Jesus is not new. They have been plotting alongside their enemies, the Herodians, since chapter 3, verse 6. That's like three years ago. Okay? They didn't like Jesus at all because Jesus taught with authority, not as the scribes did. Jesus was drawing this massive crowd into himself. Jesus claimed to have the ability to forgive sin, and they considered that to be blasphemy. Jesus was performing signs and wonders and miracles that they couldn't do, and it was leading these people potentially astray. They didn't like the fact that he claimed to be Lord over the Sabbath, and that when they approached him and ridiculed him about not following the commandments and the traditions of the elders, he said, so what? He ate with sinners. I mean, who who does that? How could you eat with unholy sinners? He cast out demons, which they decided he could only do because he was the father of demons himself. He was Satan. He dared even to call them hypocrites. He said, though you honor God with your lips, your hearts are far from him. He cursed the temple, right? He overturned the tables, caused this huge disturbance. This was just two days earlier. Such a ruckus, such a pandemonium. There are people everywhere. When when they go and they actually challenge his authority, he ends up making them look like fools in front of everyone. And it's clear they want him gone. They want him arrested. They want him destroyed. Chapter 11, verse 18, and chapter 12, verse 2 make it clear. They wanted to arrest him and see him destroyed. But the only reason they didn't, The thing that prevented them from doing it was because they feared the people. And now here they are in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, and they're in the exact same predicament. They were seeking to arrest him by stealth and kill him, but they were afraid lest there be an uproar from the people. Now these guys clearly hated Jesus, right? They clearly hated him. They wanted him dead. He was a threat to them and to their way of life. And they've been seeking a way to destroy him for some time. I mean, John 11:57 tells us that for some time the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, that he should let them know so that they could arrest him. Their intentions were clear. And the only reason they failed to carry it out is because they were afraid of the people. They loved the attention of the people. They loved their positions of authority. They loved being considered to be godly and righteous and holy in the eyes of men. And who would, what would people think of them if they knew that deep down they were murderers at heart? What would pe- people wouldn't follow them if they tried to kill Jesus. So we've got to find some sneaky way to kind of carry this out so that we don't dirty our hands in the process. We still want to look good for the people. But they knew that there was no other option. At this point, they're just like, what else can we do? Jesus has to die. He has to die right now. And he has to die in a way that is not going to turn the people against us or cause us to be unable to perform our priestly duties. And verse 10 and 11 tell us that Judas shows up and he's willing to betray Jesus and they were glad. Okay, not like, yay, that's great, but they were ecstatic. They were thrilled to death that this was the case and they promised to give Judas money. These guys clearly are Jesus haters and their actions would lead to his death just two days later. They literally hated Jesus to death. 
Now, we read about these guys, and we instantly just kind of put them aside. <laughs> I'm not like a scribe or a Pharisee, all right? I don't hate Jesus. I don't mock Jesus. I'm not trying to pay somebody to kill Jesus off. Now, I know some people who hate Jesus. I know some people who would mock Jesus, and if they could, they would kill Jesus. But me, I don't hate Jesus. And that may be true in part. But we can't forget something. These were very religious people. They were very moral, very upright. They were very, very committed to their religion. They followed it to the T. These were good people. Quotation marks. Right? They would not consider themselves haters. They would not consider themselves murderers. They would consider themselves God-fearers. But it's only when Jesus stepped in and challenged their way of life that they began to hate him. It's only when he came and he confronted them that they began to take issue with Jesus. And what began as doubts and questions soon grew into fear. I'm afraid of Jesus. And fear became defensiveness. I'm, de- I'm defensive towards what Jesus is telling me. And that soon became an argumentative spirit and, and hatred and bitterness towards him. And now they're willing to act so that they might kill him. And though they didn't start out that way as hating Jesus, as Jesus came in and challenged their lives, they're then faced with no other options and they're left hating Jesus. Now, you may say that you don't hate Jesus, but what happens when Jesus becomes a threat to your way of life? What happens when Jesus comes in and he says, you know what? You can't continue to live that way. What happens when Jesus comes in and he says, you know what? You're wrong. You're wrong on this. Or you're worshiping the wrong thing. What happens when Jesus comes in and he strips back that veil of false piety that you put up and you show off for everybody else and he shows your hypocrisy, he shows your sin, he shows your ungodliness? What happens when Jesus reveals that you worship buildings and rituals rather than the one to whom it all belongs? What happens when Jesus challenges your sense of authority? or your love for yourself, or your glory-seeking? What happens when Jesus pegs you for the people-pleaser that you are? You know, when you begin to ask yourselves questions like that, you realize that you're a lot more like these guys than you ever thought that you were before. Now you can't say, I'm not like them. Now you can't say anymore, you know what, that was a long time ago, and those are different people, and I'm not like that. I wouldn't do that. I would love Jesus. I wouldn't hate Jesus. Well, really? Friends, I can tell you without a doubt that Jesus is in the process of challenging your way of life. Each one of us, he's going to come at and he's going to deal with your false loves. He's going to deal with your false hopes. 
He's going to deal with your false worship. Whatever it might be, wherever you're at, Jesus is going to meet you where you are. And he's going to say, you know what? This has to change. And at that point, you're left with an option. Either to love him or to hate him. There's no other way. And you might not be there yet, right? But one day, push is going to come to shove. And Jesus is going to show up and he's going to strip back all of that false piety and all of those things that you love and you're going to see them for what they are. And at that point, you're going to either respond by breaking down and repenting and embracing Jesus in love or you are going to turn in hatred and run the other way. But apathy and indifference is not an option. At that point, I can't say that I'm going just to continue to love Jesus in moderation. He's going to challenge everything, and there is no middle way. There is no such thing as Jesus in moderation. But if you're not yet convinced that you're like the scribes of the Pharisees, we'll turn our attention to another Jesus hater named Judas. Now, usually we kind of work straight through the passage, right? We go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, all the way down to 11. But We can't do that in this passage because this is one of those Markin sandwiches that we've seen so many times before. Now, I'm not talking about food. I'm sorry if I made you hungry. But what I'm talking about is a literary technique that Mark uses time and time again where he takes this one story and he divides it in half. He shoves another story inside of it. And the only way for you to really understand the whole or that outside story is to first understand the inside. And so that's why we call it a sandwich, right? It's not a sandwich unless it's got meat on it, right? And you, right? Other than that, it's just two buns. It's just bread, right? You don't really get the bread. Bread is not all that great, but you stick meat in the middle of it, and it's great. And now this whole thing has a whole new flavor, a whole new reality, right? Three through nine is the meat, okay? That's the story of the woman, the unknown woman who comes in and anoints Jesus. And the point of that is the value of Christ. And what it means to love the value of Christ and seeing what he's worth. And that is in a juxtaposition with this, this account of the betrayal and the desire to kill Jesus. Right? It's shoved right in the middle of there. And when Mark does that, that hole now envelops everything. And what you see is that everybody in the story is now forced into a dilemma that they must deal with. Either you are on one side or the other. Either you love Jesus or you hate Jesus, and there's no other way. And everyone's going to have to choose. That's what Mark's doing here. So we need to look at verses 10 and 11 first. Judas is the other Jesus hater in this story. Let's, let's read 10 and 11. It says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard it, they were glad, and they promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, we like to vilify the scribes and the Pharisees and, all, and the chief priests and all those guys. Well, if we like to vilify them, we love to vilify Judas, don't we? If there's anybody in Scripture that I am not like, it is Judas. I am nothing like Judas. I cannot relate to Judas. Right? I mean, we look at that and we're just like, there's no way. We can't possibly. He's, he's evil incarnate. He's like Satan himself. I mean, doesn't John say in John 6, 70 and 71 that Jesus told his disciples very early on that though he had chosen them and though he had appointed them to be his disciples, one of them was a devil? 
Don't you remember that? Well, what about Luke's account and John's account? Because when Judas was kind of acting on this desire to betray Jesus, Luke and John both say that Satan entered into him. So Judas is like a puppet in Satan's hand. He's got to be possessed. He's the devil incarnate, right? I can't be like him. Well, we also have to remember that Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, verses 20, verse 23, that Jesus, who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And we see that God, this is part of God's plan all along, that God is actively and sovereignly involved in all of that, but that still works perfectly in accordance of the willful desires of sinful and lawless men to put him to death. And so, and Mark, he wants us to understand that though this was part of God's sovereign plan from before the creation of the world, and though Satan was clearly influencing Judas, Judas made the decision to betray Jesus. Judas is morally responsible for his actions. He sought an opportunity. He is responsible. And though it was part of God's plan, and Satan tempted him to it. Jesus says just a few verses later in chapter 14, verse 21, that woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed, that it would be better for that man if he had not been born. Judas is clearly responsible for his actions. He willingly made the decision to seek out the chief priests, and he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. And Jesus says he'll be judged for it. Now, we don't really know what Judas's motives were. We don't really know exactly what led Judas to betray Jesus. A lot of times we want to say, well, it was Satan, right? He was possessed by Satan. He was under the control of Satan. It's not that like Judas was acting of his own volition. He was just under the control of Satan. I mean, after all, we've kind of seen that. But again, Mark wants us to understand Judas made his own decisions. Judas sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. You see, to act as a false accuser or a slanderer or an adversary of Christ is to take on the work of Satan himself. This is why Jesus called Peter Satan when Peter basically challenged and reviled, tried, tried to rebuke Jesus for saying that he was going to die and be raised again back in chapter 8. Right? When you act, when you perform the work of Satan, when you act as an adversary or a slanderer or a false accuser, right, you are in accordance with the work of Satan. But that doesn't mean that he is a mindless puppet in the devil's hands. Some say that Judas betrayed Jesus because he was greedy. After all, in John's account of this passage, it tells us that Judas was the ringleader behind this opposition that the woman experienced in verses 4 and 5. Right? They were questioning why was this not sold and the money given to the poor? And John tells us that, Jesus, that Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. But Mark tells us that it was only after Judas willingly sought out the chief priests, like he went to them to betray Jesus, that they willingly offered him money. They just made a promise. And we don't even know what it is from Mark. We have to learn that from Matthew. 30 pieces of silver. We think silver is really precious, really valuable. 30 pieces of silver would come to today's standards about $7,500. 
Could you imagine betraying Jesus for $7,500? Okay, if you're greedy, you don't, you don't betray somebody for $7,500. I mean, if you're desperate, maybe, but not greedy. So I don't think it was that. Maybe he couldn't handle the fact that, Jew, that Jesus had cursed the temple and the religious leaders. Because after all, he goes to them after Jesus did that. Right? Maybe he was so, it was so ingrained in his mind that worship has to look like this. That it has to involve the temple. It has to involve the priests and all this. That when Jesus curses the temple, that it couldn't possibly be that. He couldn't handle it. And so... Um, He couldn't see that Jesus was the center of worship, not the temple or religious rituals that took place there. It could be any number of these. It could be that Jesus more than likely was not the Christ that he expected or that he wanted. I'm sure that like all the other disciples, Judas had some pretty big expectations of what it would look like for Jesus to enter into Jerusalem. If he's the Christ, if he's the Messiah, that's going to mean some good stuff for me. After all, James and John, they're arguing, they're, they're begging, trying to get glory, right? They want to sit at Jesus' right and left hand. You've got the disciples who are arguing back and forth over who is the greatest. I'm sure that he expected wealth and power and for Jesus to overthrow the Roman oppressors. That that was his hope as Jesus entered into Jerusalem. But Jesus keeps talking about his death. And here it happens again. He's talking about this woman anointing him for burial. This is not the Christ that's supposed to come and deliver us. This is not the Christ that we expected or wanted. And after hearing Jesus say yet again that he would die, and after this woman, she comes in and she anoints him with this this perfume, this $40,000 worth of perfume. He's just had enough. That's it. This is not who I'm looking for. And so he goes after that. says, then... Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests in order to betray him. It was after this display of love and value of Jesus that Judas responds in hateful treachery. You know, as I got to thinking about that, I got to thinking about worship. And have you ever had one of those experiences where you've you've actually seen someone authentically worshiping Jesus? And, and there was a small part of you that was a bit jealous, a bit envious, maybe, or maybe embarrassed, or even you were angered by it. Judas, in seeing this, rather than repenting, he ended up betraying Christ. Friends, Judas was not evil incarnate. He was a man tempted to love other things more than Jesus. He was a man that loved the idea of glory and wealth and power and freedom more than he loved Christ. Jesus simply wasn't the Christ that he wanted. Jesus didn't come to do the things that he wanted him to do. And so Judas had had enough. But, you know, Mark doesn't identify all those things. Those are all just possibilities. I think possibilities that really play into our own hearts. But Mark is really only concerned about identifying two things about about Judas from this passage. 
First, he makes a point in verse 10 that Judas was one of the twelve. Have you ever thought about that? Judas was one of the twelve. Judas knew Jesus more than anyone else. Judas was handpicked by Jesus. You will be my disciple. He's been with Jesus almost continuously for three years. Everything that Jesus had ever said, he heard. Saw Jesus perform almost every single miracle. Was there every time that Jesus taught. Who had more of an opportunity to hear and respond to Jesus than Judas did? Not many. Not many were able to hear the gospel more and to understand what it meant more and love Jesus more. Jesus even called him friend. And not just as they were walking along the road, but also as Judas betrayed him with a kiss. Jesus withheld nothing from Judas, and yet Judas betrayed him. And this ought to serve as a warning to us. Nearness to Jesus is no guarantee for faithfulness. You can be very, very close to Jesus and still hate him. We see that in Judas. Intimacy with Jesus requires watchfulness. That's what we've seen in chapter 13. But instead of preparing himself and staying awake, Judas actually, he was watchful, but looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. You can be very near to Christ and still hate him. You can hear the truth time and time and time and time again, and yet not see Jesus for the priceless treasure that he is. But not only is nearness not an indication of our love for Jesus, but Mark also identifies that Judas sought an opportunity to betray Christ. Whatever Judas' motive was, whether he loved money or power or freedom or comfort or you name it, more than Jesus, the result of that desire was that he actively sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. In his pursuit of loving something else that led to an exchange, that led to a betrayal, that led to a handing over of Jesus for that other thing, whatever it is. And we do the same thing. You know, we might not go so far as to think that we were going to literally hand Jesus over to death. But you know, each time you decide to love something more than Christ, you betray him. You exchange him for that thing. You deliver him over for the sake of whatever that pleasure might be. Jesus did not come and live a perfect life and then sacrifice that life by laying it down and dying on a cross for sin so that you could continue to live in your sin. He wasn't raised for our justification so that we can continue to live in sin, but so that we might be free from our sin. Jesus didn't die so that you could be saved from the consequences and the shame associated with your sin, but so that you could be saved from your sin. From it. 
And that's completely different. And every time you, as one who professes to be a disciple of Christ, to be a follower of Christ, who professes to love Christ, and yet you choose to love something else more than Christ, you betray Him, the one who loved you and gave Himself for your sin. When you entertain those ungodly thoughts, you are seeking an opportunity to betray Christ. When you continue to begrudgingly go to work in discontentment and you allow that to fester in your heart, you are seeking an opportunity to betray Christ. When you choose to go off on somebody and tear them down and be critical of them rather than building them up for the glory of Christ, then you are seeking an opportunity to betray Christ. When you place yourself in that compromising position at work or at school or with your girlfriend, you are seeking an opportunity to betray Christ. When you entertain those lustful thoughts about how my life would be better if I just had this, or you go after the indulgements of the world and the pleasures, whether they be entertainment or food or relationships or security or comfort or wealth or you name it, then you are seeking an opportunity to betray Christ. Friends, we can be near to Jesus, very near to Jesus. We can profess to love Jesus. But when we put anything first, when we love anything else more than we love Jesus, then like Judas, we betray him with a kiss. Friends, that's not love. That's hate. It's hate. And the writer of Hebrews likens it to crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. May we not do that. As we sing in How Deep the Father's Love, it was my sin that held Him there until it was accomplished. Let's not crucify Him again. I pray that as we walk out of here and you find yourself on that path headed towards that dearly loved sin, whatever it might be, that you would hear the words, verse 11, echoing in your head. He or she sought an opportunity to betray him. Chet sought an opportunity to betray him. Matt sought an opportunity to betray him. And I, mean, I pray that that would not be said of us. But I pray that you would hear those words in your head when you go out of here today. In choosing anything before Christ, we are choosing to hate Jesus to death. But by the grace of God, that's not the only option for us. And praise Him for that. Though they hated Jesus, we see in verses 3 through 9 that this unnamed woman actually loved Jesus to death. Let's read again verses 3 through 9. It says, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. 
And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. If you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has been done, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Here's Jesus, and he's eating, eating this meal in the house of Simon the leper. More than likely, he's a former leper. Otherwise, he would not be hosting a dinner party, right? This leprosy might have been one that Jesus himself healed. We don't really know. We're not told. But there's Jesus, and he's reclining at the table as is customary, and something very uncustomary happens. This woman walks in to a place where she doesn't belong. She would not be welcome there, okay? She comes in, and she takes this bottle of very expensive perfume. That's what pure nard is. It's an ointment. It's very, very priceless. It's in this alabaster flask. That The flask in itself is a piece of art. And she takes that thing. It's worth probably about forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 by today's standards. A small fortune. And rather than taking just a few drops to anoint Jesus, which is all that is required as is customary when you anoint a dinner guest, she breaks the flask and she pours it all over him. She pours out this small fortune on Jesus. And the room is just covered in this smell. I mean, you guys have been in an elevator with a woman that wore too much perfume, right? I mean, could you imagine if this woman had just broke the bottle and dumped it all over herself and you're just standing in the room at that point? You know, it's just reeking. It's overwhelming, right? And it says in verse 4 that some of them said to themselves indignantly. I mean, they were angry. They were mad, vehement. Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. I mean, they couldn't understand why she would waste something that is so precious and so expensive on Jesus. And Matthew tells us that that some were some of his disciples, some of Jesus' disciples. And John tells us that the ringleader of these disciples was Judas Iscariot. Right? They could not imagine why she wouldn't have just sold this and given the money to the poor. And so they started chapping her. They were chewing her out about it. Just as an aside, right? I wouldn't even deal with this, but like half of the commentaries kind of go there on this passage, so I feel like I have to deal with it. This passage is not about care for or neglect of the poor. Okay? A lot of people go that route with that. That's not what this is about. Okay? Now, Jesus clearly says that you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can, and I think explicitly throughout Scripture that you should do good for them, right? To be a good neighbor, to love your neighbor as yourself, means that those people that God has placed in your life providentially, you need to share their burdens. You need to care for them. You need to love them well. 
And that includes financially. So you need to care for those, but as God places them in your life. But if you think for a second that you're going to overcome the scourge of poverty, I think that this passage speaks against it. That until Christ returns, poverty will always be here. Deuteronomy 15 says the same thing. It doesn't mean that you don't be intentional to reach out. But this is not about socialism. This is not about Christian communism. This is not about just absolutely neglecting the poor or any of that kind of stuff, right? This is not, that's not what it's about. This is about the value and the worth of Christ, okay? Not social equality, but about Christ, okay? And you see it in Jesus' response. I mean, clearly he doesn't agree with the disciples. He said, right, they're chewing her out, right? And in they're saying, but he doesn't say to them, yeah, that, you're right. She should have sold that and given it to the poor, did he? No, he said, she's done a beautiful thing for me, right? <clears throat> he said that you always have this opportunity to do good for them. You can, do, you can care for the poor whenever you want. He says, leave her alone, right? What, what they consider to be this waste and a social evil, not to mention just physically repugnant because of the smell, Jesus says, she's done a beautiful thing for me. She has anointed me for burial. And rather than using the worth of this ointment to display the value of social equality, Jesus praises her for showing the worth and value of him. In, in saying that you will not always have me, the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me, Jesus actually sets himself above that second greatest commandment of love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what is the only commandment that is above love your neighbor as yourself? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. He's pointing to his deity. He's pointing to his value. Jesus is the son of God. And he is worth all. And in this case, you can safely add all of your perfume, right? Jesus is worth it all. And he says that she has done what she could. This is actually the second time that Jesus commended a woman for doing what she could. The first was in chapter 12, verses 43 and 44, where the poor widow put in the last two coins that she had, all that she had to live on. Jesus commends both that widow for her $2 offering and this woman here, this unnamed woman, for her $40,000 plus offering. He commends them both the same, not because of the amount that they spent, but because of the amount that they kept for themselves. They saved nothing. They gave all. There's nothing else that she could do to express her love for Jesus but to anoint him for his burial. No doubt she had heard the predictions that Jesus made regarding his coming death, and she's here to do what she could, all that she could for him. And so she probably took what was a family heirloom, what was a precious treasure, and she gave that out for him. She saved nothing for herself. She literally loved him until death. And so here we actually see two predictions again that serve as proof that Jesus is the Son of God. You see them? There in verse 9 and, um, and in verse 8. Verse 8 where he predicts his death once again, which is going to be filled two days later. And then in verse 9, And truly I say to you that wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has been do- done will be told in memory of her. 
right? Jesus assures us of the purpose of the church and its fulfillment of its mission, that the gospel will be proclaimed in the whole world. Where did this take place? Bethany. Where are you? You're in Champaign. Well, you're technically in Urbana, Illinois. You're on the other side of the world, right? This is being fulfilled in your hearing today. It's amazing. And so how are we to remember what this woman has done? Well, this woman loved and valued Christ to the point where she was willing to face opposition, going to where she didn't belong, to worship Jesus by taking the most valuable possession that she had, more more than likely a precious family heirloom, and she breaks it and lavishly pours it all out on Jesus. Disregarding the backlash that she would receive from those who didn't understand her actions, her goal was not to please them, but to display the value and beauty of Christ because of who He is, the priceless Son of God, and because of what He was about to do, to give His life by dying on the cross to pay the ransom for many. She knows what that cost, and she's willing to spend herself on it. She has done all that she could. And her actions serve as a declaration to the world and to us of the matchless worth of Christ. It is a proclamation. This is evangelism at this point. We are still telling the story of what she has done. She is bearing witness to you, Mike, of what God has done in Christ and what He is worth to us. This is a testimony of a woman fully devoted to Christ, that she has loved Jesus to death. Now it's easy for us to think to ourselves, well, isn't isn't this just excessive? Is this really what Jesus calls us all to, or is this just like a special example that's kind of set apart there that few people will do, and the rest of us are just going to say, wow, she's really cool. I think not. In asking that question, notice how close it was to the question, why the waste? You think that this woman wasted herself? She wasted this purnard on Christ? You really think that this is that excessive? And if so, what does that tell you about what you truly value? One commentator rightly said that the world has never had a problem with religion in moderation. It has no problem with too much wealth or too much power or too much sex or too much influence, but too much religion, well, we can't go there. And this is evidence of that. This woman knows that Jesus is worthy of her sacrifice, but the disciples do not. Friends, let's not forget that Jesus doesn't call people to moderation in discipleship. Do you remember what he said in Mark chapter 8? That if anyone would come after me, not just you 12, but anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his life? And for what can a man give in return for his life? 
For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is not a call to moderation. To just add Jesus to part of your life. This is a call to give yourself completely to Him. That everything that you have and everything that you are is now identified with and bears the name of Christ. Whether it is your strength or your mind or your soul or a bottle full of perfume. All of it is Christ's. The disciples, they didn't really get it yet. And what's the consequence of that? They all abandoned him at his death. Simon's throwing a nice party for Jesus here, but where is he at the cross? He's nowhere to be found. They don't get it yet. They still fail to recognize the weight of this call. But even more, they fail to recognize the matchless value of Christ. Friends, you're never going to be motivated to do this unless you recognize just how much Christ cost. But one day, the disciples would. The disciples would give their lives because they recognized the, the matchless worth of Christ, that he is invaluable. They would share the same sentiments as Paul who said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if you've ever read biographies by the Christian powerhouses of the faith, I mean, I encourage you. I encourage you to read missionary biographies. When you read biographies of men and women who have sacrificed, Lord only knows how much for the sake of this call, you find that over and over again they considered it no loss, that it was a privilege. David Livingstone, missionary to Africa, when asked about the 30 years that he had devoted his life to his mission, he simply responded, I made no sacrifice. It was a privilege. Adoniram Judson lost two wives, half of his 13 children, sacrificed in prison under torture, was near death countless times, lost I don't know how many missionary friends to the call. When he considered how much it would cost him to devote his life to follow Christ to Burma, he said the future is as bright as the promises of God. Well, perhaps the most recognized is that from the martyr Jim Elliot. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Friends, I wonder what would happen if we stopped sitting on the fence and trying to play it safe and kind of keep Jesus in one hand with the world in the other. I wonder what would happen if we really sold ourselves out for Christ. I wonder what would happen if we truly loved him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. Do you realize what it costs for the Son of God to die on the cross for your sin? We just sang about the fact that we'll never really grasp that. But we ought to labor to try. That was no cheap thing. 
Do you know the value of his being raised for our justification? Because if so, you will gladly count all things lost for the sake of Christ. You will sing with a heart overflowing with love for your Savior. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love that is so amazing and so divine demands my life and my soul and my all. Friends, don't go through life as those who hate Jesus. He is of infinite worth. And I pray that you would love him to death. And that those last words said of you would not be that Chet sought an opportunity to betray Christ, but instead, and rather, Chet gave all he could. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we... We thank you that we cannot fully grasp the sacrifice that Christ made on behalf of sin. But God, I pray that we would look deep within our hearts and we would realize just how much of our time and our energy and just our lives we we spend devoted to things that are contrary to you. That we really do hate you in our pursuit to love the world. God, I, I thank you that while we were still sinners, that while we were still counted among the ungodly, the dead in our sin, that, Christ, that because of your love for us, Christ died for the ungodly. And I pray that we would just see how much that cost. God, I pray that we would spare nothing, not out of obligation, not out of duty, not out of this begrudging sense that we've got to pay you back but just out of abundant joy and praise because we recognize who Jesus is and what he has done on our behalf. God, give us eyes to see things for what they really are. All of these treasures that we try to store up for ourselves, I pray that they would taste like dust, that they would look like rust and filth in our hands compared to the matchless beauty and value and wonder Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.